Hey, uh, today's Palm Sunday, and uh, the, Palm Sunday is an interesting day. This is a day we celebrate as followers of Jesus, uh, this kind of epic day where Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Israel, and uh, he rides in on a donkey. And this is significant because there was crowds, and they were cheering, and they were shouting things, and they were laying down coats, and they were laying down branches, and they were just kind of receiving Jesus. And the reason this is such an important day is because in ancient times, kings would come back to their kind of national city after being victorious in war, and they would ride in on horses or chariots, and the people, their people, would kind of roll out the red carpet, so to say. And so this was significant because this was kind of like the rolling out of the red carpet for Jesus. And Mark, who was probably an eyewitness, he was probably there, um, he writes this about what the people were shouting. He says, they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Now the word Hosanna actually means, it's, it's like a cry of praise or a call of praise, but also it's a, a cry of help. And so they're praising Jesus, like, Jesus, you're something special. But they're also kind of doing this call for help of Jesus. And you see it here because it says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That was referring to David, like King David, the guy that killed Goliath, that David. And so in essence, they're saying, you're like bringing this new kingdom. And David was our greatest king who built this great kingdom. And so they were calling out for help. In essence, they're saying, Jesus, you're awesome. And you're going to deliver us from the uh, 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 oppressive uh, uh, Romans who were occupying their land. But interestingly enough, Jesus would come as a king. And he would come to deliver them. But he would not deliver them from the occupiers of their land the Roman Empire. He would deliver them from themselves, from their sin, from what separated them from God. And so uh, Palm Sunday is a very uh, uh, special, special day, but it's also special because there's a posture that Palm Sunday shows us that as followers of Jesus, we're all called to take. And the posture is this. It's a posture of saying, Jesus, your king and in all the areas of my life where I kind of want to do it my way, but you've kind of asked me to do it a different way, because you're king, I'm going to submit myself to you in your way. See, it's this kind of posture of submission. And so Palm Sunday is really, really significant. Uh, the interesting, the irony actually of this story is that less than seven days after, the same crowd would show up. And they would line the streets again. But instead of laying down branches, instead of laying down coats, instead of cheering Jesus on, they would jeer him and ridicule him. And instead of shouting Hosanna, they would shout, crucify, crucify him. And Jesus would be taken to a cross and he would die on the cross for your sin and for mine so we could be made right with God. You know, it's interesting. The reaction of the crowd was not congruent with themselves. It doesn't make sense. They're cheering Jesus one day and jeering him the next. It was incongruent. You know, incongruence is the state or condition of not being in agreement, accordance, or in harmony, or the degree in which uh, things are in this state. The crowds were not congruent with themselves. 
Well, today we're going to talk about this whole idea of incongruence. But we're not going to talk about it from the perspective of the Easter story. You just heard that. We're going to talk about the incongruence. All of us, doesn't matter what faith you kind of say, this is what I'm part of. All of us experience this kind of incongruence. We're going to talk about that incongruence. Some of us specifically experience incongruence in our gender and sexuality. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And then we're going to talk about also, secondly, we're going to talk about the incongruence we all face when we run into people who believe and think differently than us. And here's the deal. If you've never come in contact with anyone who thinks differently than you, you're a coercive person and you should stop it, okay? So that's just, I'm going to say that, okay. So, incongruence. Well, we're in a series right now called Designer Series. And if this is your first Sunday with us and you missed last week, this is a series that we've kind of tackled talking about sexuality and gender and some of the struggles that we have with sexuality and gender and some of the confusion that we uh, sometimes experience. And so uh, the, this is a two-part series and really it's one message that I broke into two because it's really long. And some of you are like, no, it should have been four-part because they're always long, okay? But here's the deal. If you missed last week, it's really important that you go back and listen to last week. And probably this week is going to be like, whoa, how did he get there? Because a lot of what I'm assuming and what I'm bringing into this message today assumes last week, okay? So if you missed it, you really need to go back and, and listen to last week. Okay, so regarding sexuality, last week, just to kind of do a really quick kind of catch up, uh, last week we looked at creation, right? If we're going to understand how we've been made, we have to look at creation. And we saw that God created the world in six days or in six segments. And after each day of creation, he always, uh, most days he keeps saying the same thing. And it shows up in Genesis 1. It says, and God saw that it was good. You know, he creates something. He's like, wow, that's good. Well, on the sixth day, uh, God created the animals. And at the end of the sixth day, we see again, and God saw that it was good. But God does something different on the sixth day. After he's done creating, and he's like, oh, that's good. He starts creating again. And he creates something very unique and very special. He creates you and I. He creates humanity. He creates humanity as male and female. And he creates us in his image. And, and male and female is actually part of being created in the image of God because God, and this is a confusing concept, you gotta listen to the next, last week, but God is this, God. he's one essence, we serve one God, but he's three distinct persons, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And so God is one essence and yet distinct, and as humanity, we're one essence, equal, equal male and female, and yet distinct male and female, and this shows up as what it means to be the very likeness and image of God. It's really important in us being image bearers, male and female. And then we looked at last week uh, through kind of the history of scripture because scripture was written over like 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors. They didn't all know each other or live at the same time and yet it says the same thing, which is kind of like a miracle. And all throughout scripture, it doesn't appear at any point that there's this kind of expanding idea or fluidity as to what it means to be male and female, as what it means to have gender. And so, you know, ideas that we have today that, you know, gender is fluid and, and it changes and, and male and female isn't, you know, as, you know, one, two or black and white, uh, it doesn't show up, that doesn't show up in scripture all throughout scripture. And so, um, this is something that, uh, that, that Jesus did or God did as he created humanity, male and female. But then we see this. We see, and God saw that it was very good. 
after God creates male and female, as God creates humanity in his image, something changed from good to very good. And the difference is we, humanity, was unique, special, more valuable than all other creation, than all other creation. Okay, so we've kind of caught up. This is what, you know, God created the male and female, and, and there doesn't seem to be a deviation between male and female. Now, here's the thing. I imagine that probably we all agree today as we look at creation and God says it's good and God says it's very good and last week I kind of challenged you and said, you know, you, we all need to wrestle. Will we agree with God as we think of our own lives and say, God, you created me very good, right? Including my body, my sexuality. Can we agree with God that in our humanity as image bearers that we've been created very good? And there's a tension to this. And, and you've been sitting on this tension all week and the tension is this. You look out in the world and some of you, probably all of us to some degree, look at our own lives and there's some things that aren't all that good. And so it's like, what parts do I need to thank God for because it's good and what parts aren't good? Like there's some beauty in the world, but there's a lot of brokenness in the world. And there's this tension of beauty and brokenness all mixed together. And I would have... Uh, presume that we likely agree that something's broken in the world. That as we look out on the world and we look at our own lives, we're like, man, there's some things, there's a lot of beauty, but there's some brokenness in the world. But although we probably agree that there's something broken, I imagine that we likely disagree as to what it is that's broken. We likely disagree as to what it is that, it's, that is broken. And this comes back to the whole conversation we've been having about sexuality. You know, probably we all agree as it relates to sexuality that something's broken in our world, but I imagine we likely disagree as to what's broken. And some of you, you look at the whole topic of sexuality and you're like, there are some things broken in this world that used to be, you know, male and female and it was so clear and now it's kind of fluid and it's expanding and it's just confused things. The world is broken. And others of you, you look at the whole topic of sexuality and you're like, you know what's broken in the world? There's people who still think it's just male and female and it's way broader than that and it's so narrow-minded, the, the world is broken. See how we agree that something's broken, but we may not agree as to what's broken? Well, it's interesting. In Genesis 1-2, as God creates humanity, he creates the world, and it's all good. As you get to Genesis 3, Scripture begins to... Uh, give us insight as to what's broken and what has happened. And if you're not a Jesus follower, you may disagree because this is uh, from Scripture. But I just want to work through this and talk about this, how this uh, works out in some of the incongruence and some of the sexuality struggles that we have. Okay, so in Genesis 3, after God creates all things good and humanity's very good, uh, humanity sins. They disobey God and in the moment of disobedience, in the moment of sin, suddenly things begin to instantly fall apart. Um, suddenly there's incongruence or a lack of harmony between people and God. They were in this perfect relationship with God and all of a sudden it's like, that's broken. There was a brokenness that showed up between uh, humanity and creation. There was brokenness that showed up between humanity and other humanity. And then, get this, there was also brokenness that showed up 
within humanity, which means this. There is this incongruence in all of us, this, this lack of understanding, this lack of living into the full life that we were created to live into. In fact, the Apostle Paul, some thousands of years after God created and, and sin entered, he talks about this brokenness in Romans chapter 8, and he says this. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In essence, he's saying like all of creation, like the trees, all of it, the earth, it's like groaning under the weight of brokenness, groaning under the weight of deterioration. It's like things are beautiful, but they're so broken. And the entire world is groaning, but not only the world, you, you're groaning. Your body is groaning. That's what Paul says next. He says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, those of us who have received God's Spirit through faith in Jesus, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In essence, Paul says, we are broken. We are broken mentally. We're broken physically. We're broken spiritually. We're broken emotionally. There's this brokenness, even though there's beauty in all of those. There's this brokenness. And even our bodies, our physical bodies, are groaning for this redemption. It's like, man, I just want my, your body just wants to work and yet it keeps deteriorating. And I don't know if you knew this, but we're all on a journey to what? death. Our bodies are waiting for this redemption, this resurrection, even as we carry the weight of brokenness in our bodies themselves. Well, part of this brokenness actually shows up in an incongruence in ourselves. When, but what I mean by that is the way God created us to live and to live into this perfect life before there was sin and death, there's this incongruence because we keep living in this pathway of death even though we should be living into the pathway of life. And Paul talks about this in regards to people who are believers, this kind of like this tension, but I think this is true of all of us. Here's what Paul says. He says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature, right? This like broken side of me. For I have the desire to do what's good. That's God's spirit in me. Like I wanna do these good things. God created me to do these good things, but I can't carry it out. There's kind of like these two things going on. The things I want to do, I can't do. That's what he says next. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this lot work. Although I want to do good, evil is there, uh, right there with me. See the tension Paul is talking about? And I bet you've experienced this tension there's like this good that you want to live into and yet sometimes you just end up doing the wrong thing. It's like, why does this happen? Why is there this tension? Because we were created for life and to live into life. And yet we live in this kind of broken world with broken bodies, broken minds, and broken uh, emotions. And so we're navigating. How do we live in this brokenness even as we wrestle with this kind of incongruence, this lack of harmony within our own lives? as we live uh, in this world. So Paul talks about this. Now, what does this have to do with sexuality? I think it actually has quite a bit to do with our sexuality. And let me just kind of backtrack and get where we got, and then we're gonna talk about kind of the incongruence we sometimes face. So God created us, good, male and female. 
And scripture doesn't really change or expand on that. It kind of sticks with male and female. And, and, and there's no kind of broadening of the idea of what gender uh, is. Um, and so we have this, this goodness. But the reality is when it comes to sexuality, uh, it's not always so black and white, is it? You know, even physically speaking, there's brokenness in our world. Uh, there's some people who are born intersexed, and so they have kind of both parts, and it's a little harder. There's a blurring of the lines, like, are they male, or are they female? And this is a reality of the brokenness that we live in. Um, we know that uh, some of us experience um, incongruence between our physical, biological, sexed bodies and our internal sense of self, what we feel. And some of us feel like we've got these male bodies, but we're females, females stuck in a male body. And, and others feel like they're males, but they've been given this female body and their internal sense, their understanding, how they feel is not congruent with their physical bodies. And it creates all kinds of struggle and difficulty. It's called gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria is a term to describe the distress that comes with the incongruence, the lack of harmony someone might experience between their biological sex and their internal sense of self or their gender identity. And so we see scripture doesn't talk about the blurring of the lines, but we experience the blurring of the lines, both physically in our world, but also experientially, emotionally, in our sense of self. And I just want to say, if that's you, if, if you... Uh, experience that incongruence, um, uh, that's a very painful and difficult journey to, to, to walk down. And uh, I've said, said this last week and I say it again, there's room for you in the kingdom of God. There's room for you in the faith to wrestle and struggle through that. But one of the questions we may have is as we struggle and wrestle through the brokenness and the incongruence, how do we navigate our way through? And what would scripture uh, teach for those of us who are followers of Jesus and experience this kind of incongruence. Now the conclusion I'm going to come to, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't imagine you'll come to the same conclusion. Maybe you will. Um, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I think this is something you would really need to wrestle with as it relates to how we navigate the incongruence as it relates to sexuality and gender. And here's uh, what I think scripture has taught us as we look at last week and then we'll talk about this a little bit more this week, that gender and sex are interrelated, not separate terms. As we read scripture, it never, scripture never separates gender and sex. So because of this, scripture would call us to express ourselves in the gender that matches our biological sex of male and female. Even when our inner sense of self is something different. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but... You're prioritizing the physical over the mental or emotional. And you're right, I am. Um, and maybe you would say, well, if God created us body, mind, and spirit, who's to say that it's not my body that's broken under the curse of sin, and my mind's actually thinking rightly, so why wouldn't my body submit to my mind and I should change my body? Instead of what you're saying, Pastor, and that is, that the body determines how the mind should think. Um, why prioritize the physical over the, um, 
the inner, inner uh, sense of self. And here's why. Um, first of all, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, the prophet says this. He says, the heart is uh, wicked and deceitful. In essence, what he's saying is, you should have a healthy distrust of your heart. And probably you've experienced this. You followed your heart into a relationship and then it didn't go well. And after you're like, yeah, shouldn't have trusted my heart in that one, right? It didn't turn out as well. We've all experienced times in our life when it's like, ah, oh, shoot, like I followed my heart and went to that you know, event or entered that relationship or spent that money and later I paid for it. It's like, I shouldn't have followed my heart. We should have a healthy distrust of our heart. And if we go with our heart, which is this seat of emotion in the Old Testament, it's like this is our inner sense of self, it can change. It's not stable. And one day we feel this and the next day we feel that and our life is going to be a bit of a roller coaster. And so one of the reasons I think the body should take priority over the inner sense of self is because we should have a healthy distrust of our body, or sorry, of our, uh, of our heart. The other reason is this. All throughout uh, history at different times and places, and this is true for us today, humanity has tended to devalue the physical body. And this is true. We, this is all through history. It's like, oh, your body doesn't mean that much. You know, just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you do. Uh, in ancient times, the Greeks, they thought the spirit was good. You know, the soul kind of thing, the part of you that's not material. That was good, but the body, the physical body was bad. And this became a huge problem in the early church because Jesus rose from the dead, what? Physically? And so there's all these people coming around saying, no, Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically. God wouldn't raise a body because bodies are bad. He probably just raised his spirit. And so all the New Testament writers, and you can read this in 1 John, they're just going on and on about like, no, Jesus rose from the dead physically. We saw his body. We touched him. We saw him eat some food. Ghosts and spirits don't eat food, okay? So this was a big, big deal, a big deal. But we tend to, as humanity throughout history and even today, we devalue the physical. But scripture always brings great value to the physical, which is why when God created the male and female physical beings, he said it's very good. We know in uh, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul spends an entire chapter, chapter 15, you can check it out, talking about the importance of the physical resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically, Christians are like the greatest fools in the world and to be pitied. This is like our whole faith, our whole hope rests on the physical resurrection. We're gonna talk more about that next week. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, do you not know that your body, physical body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which means God himself, his spirit, lives in your physical body. Like your body is important. What you do with your body is important. So he says, don't do this with your body. Don't do that with your body because your physical body is important. So as it relates to sexuality, this is why I would contend that when there is incongruence between our physical bodies and our internal sense of self, that our physical bodies should be the determining factor. That when there's incongruence, that we simply submit to what our physical body is even when our internal sense of self says, but that's not me. And I just want to say right now that if that's you and you experience that incongruence, that this may be your greatest act of surrender 
and I don't say this lightly, and God doesn't say this lightly, that the wrestle that you face, because in essence, it's gonna feel like that you are actually giving up your very identity. Maybe the most difficult thing, the biggest ask. And here's the deal, those of us who don't struggle with uh, gender dysphoria, those of us who, who, you know, are, we have congruence, it's like, yeah, I feel like I'm a male and my body's a male. Um, often we can kind of, we need to understand this is a huge, huge ask. And I don't make it lightly. And God doesn't either. You know, one of the things that uh, society, our culture, the question it tells us to ask ourselves is this. Who do I see myself as? Isn't that what we're told? Like you're on a journey to find out who you are. And you get to kind of give the direction. But as followers of Jesus, Scripture actually tells us to ask a very different question. The question is not, who do I see myself as? The question that scripture calls us to ask is, who does God see me as? Who does God see me as? And in all the places where there's disagreement between how God sees me and how I see me, going back to Palm Sunday, there's a posture in the Christian life that says, I'm gonna submit myself as an act of trust that God's your king and you know better. I'm gonna put myself under even when it doesn't make sense for me. And here's the deal. This is true of all of us. And I know there's a sermon about sexuality, but here's the deal. We are all broken. All of us, our brokenness, brokenness shows up in different ways. And some of the ways that I'm broken are different than the ways that you're broken, but the truth is we are all broken the same. And there's a surrender, an act of surrender we're all called to. But I, I, all I'm admitting and, and acknowledging is the act of surrender for those of you who struggle with gender dysphoria to say, I'm gonna live in agreement with my sex body even though my inner sense of self says something different. It may be the greatest act of surrender of your entire life and it's not a small ask. It's not a small ask. The other thing I, I, I want to say is that if you struggle with gender dysphoria, you're not a bad person. You're not like exceptionally broken or different than the rest of us. You're simply just broken differently. Your brokenness shows up in different ways than mine. And, uh, and, and we're all broken the same. And so, you know, the reality is uh, you're invited into the kingdom in your brokenness, including if you struggle with gender dysphoria and there's incongruence and you're wrestling through, how do I live this out? There's so much room for you in the kingdom of God and there's room for you in Mount Olive Church to wrestle that out and sometimes you'll get it right and sometimes you'll get it wrong. But here's the deal. If there wasn't room for you, there's not room for any of us. It'd be an empty church because we're all wrestling through. And sometimes in my struggle, I get it right and sometimes in my struggle, I get it dead wrong. And so I want to invite you in as you wrestle this, as you struggle this, to wrestle it in community, to do it with others, to invite others in as you struggle and wrestle through this. You know, to give some perspective of God's thoughts of you, I want to read through some excerpts from Psalm 139. 
And this will kind of close the first part. The first part's longer than the second. Um, on the whole area of sexuality and our relation to the incongruence we face in ourselves. This is Psalm 139, says this. It says, you search me, Lord, and you know me. I want you to think about that for a second. The God of the universe, regardless of where you're broken or in which ways you experience brokenness in this world, the God of the universe searches you. And all the things that confuse you about you that you're still trying to figure out, he already knows. He knows the parts of you that you don't know yet. So much so that he says, where can I go from your spirit, God? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. Here's the deal. Sometimes in our confusion, in our brokenness, as we face our own brokenness, there's this sense in us, it's like, I just want to run. I don't like me. I don't think anyone could like me. And I just want to run. I want to disappear. And in those moments where you want to run and you want to disappear, do you know that you have a heavenly father? He's not a stalker. But you can't flee his presence. He knows you. He searches you out. He knows the parts of you that you don't want anyone to know. Why? Because he tells us, for God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God did that. He was so involved in you. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. You know that God saw you? He saw your body before you were a body. You were already in his mind. And he's like, I'm gonna make you. That's gonna be awesome. That's what he did. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And because of all this, the psalmist says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My prayer for you today is that you would know full well that God created you that you would know full well that you are loved by your heavenly father, that you would know full well that you've been fearfully made, that you'd know full well that you and your physical sexed body are wonderfully made. So as it relates to our struggle, the incongruence we feel in our own sexuality and gender, to summarize this, I'd say, although each of us is broken, even in our brokenness, we are loved by God. And we have been called to live in his direction. That simply means that in our brokenness, we're loved by God, but we're called to live under the authority of God in his direction, which means a change of direction from our past brokenness. From our past brokenness. I told you there's kind of two parts. The second part is, and I'm gonna change gears a little bit now, and I wanna to talk to those of you uh, who maybe are followers of Jesus and you agree uh, with this perspective of sexuality and gender, you're like, hey, that's me. Um, I agree with that. Um, the question I want to deal with next is this. What do we do with the incongruence between us and others? What do we do when I believe something about sexuality? What do I do with those that believe differently than I believe? Uh, specifically speaking, I guess those who would be pro uh, trans and the trans community and trans people. Um, how do we interact with people who think differently? And uh, 
if the first part, as we related our sexuality to God and the incongruence we feel in ourselves to God, if the first point was this, we're all broken yet loved by God and we're called to live in his direction, as it relates to how we interact with others, I think the point would be this, that we live in God's direction by loving the broken. And this does not mean, as I said earlier, that if you are a trans person that you're exceptionally broken or something's you know, exceptionally wrong with you. No, this means that we're all broken. And the call for all of us, regardless of what our brokenness is, is that when we, we live in God's direction, when we love the broken, which means this, when we love others, all others. So how do we do this well as it relates to those who think differently than us? Two things I want to uh, say quickly. First one is this, love well with grace and truth. Love well as followers of Jesus, those who disagree with you, those that believe differently than you, Love well with grace and truth. You know, often as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we kind of try to bring equal amounts of grace and truth. It's like, oh man, I'm a little high on truth and people are getting offended. I'll just lower my truth. But when Jesus came, John 1.14, it doesn't say he came with equal amounts of grace and truth. It actually says he came full of both, which means more and more and more and more. So rather than lowering one so that it matches the other, as followers of Jesus, we're going to follow Jesus. We're just going to up both and continually increase them. But here's the deal. If you do this, it will get messy. And here's why I know this, because I've read the Gospels. And when you read the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus is really messy. And sometimes it doesn't seem like it's consistent. Sometimes he's like, really easy on sin, and the next time he's like really hard on someone, it's like, where did that come from? He just came so full of grace and truth, it was just kind of messy. It wasn't like a one-size-fits-all. And as you grow in grace and truth, it's going to get a little messy. Now, we've already talked about kind of the truth as it relates to sexuality, so I want to kind of focus on this idea of grace. How do we up the grace as followers of Jesus? I think it all revolves around this word love. You know, Jesus once said to his disciples, he said, the world will know you're my disciples by what you believe about sexuality. Didn't say that. He said, the world will know you're my disciples by your love. They'll know you're my disciples not because of the stance you take, not for what you're against. They're gonna know you because of your love. So here's what I wanna encourage you that are followers of Jesus as it relates to those who disagree. And this relates to the topic of sexuality, but any topic, flames and oilers, okay? It could be anything. Take a strong stand on truth, but be known for your love. Take a, st- a strong stand. We don't let go of truth. The truth never changes. We hold on to it and we take a strong stand. But here's what we're known for. We're not known for what we think. We're known for our love which means this as those who disagree with you even in the area of sexuality maybe it's the lgbtq community and you think differently than they think here's what the response should be people who think differently than you they should be like yeah i've heard about them man they are the most loving kind compassionate person i've ever met you know they have some interesting views that i totally disagree with on sexuality but man they are loving i think that's the posture the perspective we take as Christians. That although we, uh, we have some beliefs, that people don't know us first and foremost for our beliefs, they know us for our love. They may know what we think, but we are known for our love. Be known for your love. So love well 
with grace and truth. The second one would be grow in compassion by seeking to understand. Grow in compassion by seeking to understand. You know, often I think in history, Christians and the church has done a good job of letting people know, the outside world know, what we believe. Here's what we think about this. What we haven't done a very good job on is getting to know them. And we simply come with these like grenades of truth and grenades of judgment, but we don't actually know them. Here's the interesting thing about compassion. Compassion causes our hearts to go out to people. And compassion grows as your knowledge of someone grows. Often how it works. And so as you uh, uh, think about those who think differently than you, consider getting to know them so your compassion grows. Because here's the deal. We can all make judgments from a distance, cold-hearted judgment. And you know what? Our judgment might even be true. might be a true judgment. But often it changes things when we get to know someone's backstory. We get to know some of the trauma they grew up in. We get to know some of the struggles they have. And it changes the way we treat them. Let me give you an example. Imagine you found out today that uh, there was a person who stole a bag of buns from the grocery store. Now the inner justice in you is like, hey, that's wrong. They stole. They shouldn't steal. And it's not a lot, but they should probably you know, pay for it or have some small consequence for what they stole. You know what? Your judgment's true. It's wrong to steal, and they should probably pay for it, right? But let me tell you the backstory. It was a 12-year-old boy. And the 12-year-old boy grew up in a home where his dad physically and sexually abused him for five years straight, every single day, physically and sexually abused from age seven to 12. Two days ago, his father beat him to a pulp and kicked him out of the house. This boy's been living on the street, roaming the street, trying to find people who would help him and no one would help him. Finally, he resorted to stealing a bag of buns. Now, the truth of the judgment is he still did something wrong, didn't he? But knowing the backstory, doesn't it change some things? See, compassion doesn't change the truth, but it does change our treatment of others. Compassion doesn't change the truth. He still stole a bag of buns. But when we understand and our heart goes out to them, suddenly it changes how we treat them. And as you grow in compassion, you actually grow to be a bit more like Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin, which means this. God through the person of Jesus, has walked in your shoes. And his heart goes out to you because he's a God of compassion. He knows you. And because of this, the writer says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, at the foot of Jesus, at the throne of room of God, you receive grace and mercy because God is a God of compassion. May you grow in compassion as you love others. You know, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we know that the pathway to God is not behave, believe, and belong. Like, do enough good things, and then God will, you know, accept you, and then you'll be part of the family. Mm-mm. That's not the way to God. The way to God is, we've been befriended by God. He loved us while we were enemies. And then, because of his love, we simply said, God, we believe in you. Jesus, thank you for what you did on the cross. And in that moment, we started to belong to a new family 
we were children of God. And now that we're in the kingdom, we start behaving differently. We don't behave our way in, but once we've been accepted by God, we start to change and God changes us. So love well with grace and truth and grow in compassion by seeking to understand. You know, summarize this whole thing up. As we deal with our own incongruence, with our own brokenness, regardless of what that brokenness is, we need to understand that we're broken, all of us the same. Just broken differently, but we're all broken the same. We're broken yet loved by God and called to live under his direction. And as it relates to our relationship to others, we live in God's direction when we love the broken, when we love others, because God is a God of love. You know, I uh, hope that this series on sexuality has been somewhat helpful, um, but I hope it didn't answer all your questions. It wasn't meant to. Uh, This is something we wrestle with. We wrestle with God's truth. We wrestle with the grace that we've been called to live in. And as we struggle through our own brokenness in this world, And so I hope that this opens up a conversation in your own life where you seek God more and you say, God, what does your word say? And you seek to look to how you can show love to others. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that right now, the truth over all of us is that we're broken. But God, we're not abandoned. That although we're each broken, And we're longing and we look for that day when you make all things right. Thank you that we are not abandoned, that you have loved us. And I pray for those right now that feel incongruence and they want to follow you and yet there's just this this lack of harmony between their physical body and their internal sense of self. And this is a huge wrestle and a huge struggle and they feel so isolated right now. God, I pray that you would wrap your arms around them Father, as we've talked about the the big ask of Scripture, this act of surrender, it's too big for, for us to do. And so I pray for your grace to help us. And Father, for those of us who uh, uh, are followers of Jesus and, and we live in a world where not everyone sees things the way we do, and this can be a challenge for us. How do we respond to those who disagree with us? God, may you fill us with your love. May we seek to understand and grow in compassion. So God, we ask for your help. And we thank you for your love. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.